Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? In this episode, I speak with Will Harlan of Blue Ridge Outdoors magazine about a new proposal by the Forest Service to eliminate public comment and scientific review from any new logging, mining, or development activity less than 4,200 acres in the National Forest. So while this is a nationwide proposal, we focus a little bit more on the East Coast since most projects cited in this area would be less than those 4,200 acres. So they could just go off um, you know, with impunity, without any regard to old growth forest or uh, rare habitat. Um, and you wouldn't know about it until it was too late and the bulldozers were already there. Um, in addition, we talk about the difference between national parks and national forests, why environmental con uh, conservation shouldn't be a partisan issue. And it seems like, especially in the past few years, decade or so, it has been increasingly a partisan issue. We talk about, um, you know, some surprising conservation wins under the Trump administration. And um, we chat about trail running. So Will is a huge trail runner. He actually has a documentary about him called El Chivo. So we definitely chat about that. And um, his bestseller, Untamed, The Wildest Woman in America and the Fight for Cumberland Island. Um, finally, we talk about the state of red wolves. So red wolves, there are, um, in the podcast, we kind of run into the assumption that there's 25 left in the wild. There actually turns out to be 14. And they're really isolated on a small patch of land in southern, um, or excuse me, in, in eastern North Carolina. So in the um, Albemarle Sound Peninsula. Um, yeah, we talk about options that, you know, uh, can find them a better place since they're being pushed out by some of the locals. So find them a better location and also uh, how those numbers can improve and how we can hopefully increase the population and see them back to, um, you know, where they once were in the past. Anyways, I love this podcast. I think it's super informative, um, very educational, but also very entertaining. Um, Will's a great guy, really easy to talk to, uh, and because of that, very easy to listen to. Um, so as always, if you like the podcast, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. That actually helps a lot. Uh, so I really appreciate when people can do that. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy. All right, I'm here with Will Harlan. He's the editor-in-chief of Blue Ridge Outdoor Magazine, which is the largest free outdoor lifestyle magazine in the country. He's the author of bestseller Untamed, The Wildest Woman in America and the Fight for Cumberland Island, which is a New York Times bestseller. And he's the subject behind a recent documentary, El Chivo, uh, which is about his speed and endurance running in a uh, Copper Canyon in Mexico. So recently, he's been following a particularly distressing thread about the U.S. Forest Service and how they're kind of planning on removing integral parts of the you know, National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, uh, which requires the agency to get public comment before embarking on logging or road development projects. Um, so yeah, Will, thank you so much for joining me and for talking about this really timely and important subject. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so let's start off with it. I mean, you, you've written a series of articles about the proposal of allowing logging, you know, people to log with impunity in the um, Appalachian Mountains, which is pretty distressing because it's like that could take, you know, it sounded like from what you what you wrote, 4,600 or 200 acres, which is like over six square miles 
that could take swaths of that out in one single sweep. Is that is that true? Unfortunately, yes. So here's the big picture. You know, if you recreate in the East, if you go outside to hike or bike or paddle or uh, get outdoors, chances are you're probably doing it in a national forest. Most of our public lands in the East are national forests. We have a couple of national parks. We have Shenandoah, right. we have the Smokies. The Blue Ridge Parkway is technically a national park. Uh, uh, but most of the rest of the green spaces on the map, most of the rest of the places that you go to are in national forests. So they've become our recreation destinations, our recreation playgrounds, our scenic vistas, our favorite places to swim and hike and bike are national forests. They're probably the most important public lands in the East. Unfortunately, what's been proposed is the Forest Service essentially wants to cut the public and science out of their decision-making process. Right, yeah. That was the one thing that really caused me pauses. Not only causing, not only are they pulling out the public, but they're also pulling out any kind of scientific insight uh, that could really help, you know, the forest sustain throughout, you know, through their efforts. That's right. So what they've essentially proposed is for any logging projects or pipeline projects or any projects in the National Forest under 4,200 acres, which is nearly all of them in the east, the Forest Service would not have to notify the public at all. They would not have public comments. They wouldn't have to tell us until the bulldozers showed up in your favorite National Forest trailhead uh, ready to knock down some trees or put in a pipeline. So we would know about things ahead of times ahead of time if this uh, rule is adopted. This been, has been proposed by the Trump administration and the U.S. Forest Service. There's uh, no congressional approval needed, but um, there will likely be litigation if they do, in fact, uh, adopt this rule. Um, because it cuts not only the public out, and these are our public lands, it cuts out scientists, too. Uh, the, the, the Forest Service is tremendously understaffed. I think we all recognize that, you know, our our Forest Service and Park Service personnel are working as hard as they possibly can. Uh, they're cash-strapped, underfunded, understaffed. They don't have the the personnel to to cover the entire 20 million acres of national forest just in uh, the east. So they rely a lot on outside scientists, on experts, on the public to tell them about rare species, about old growth forests, about important places in the forest to protect. So when you cut the public out, when you cut the science out, the, what's left is an understaffed forest service that can't possibly do an adequate job. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's an important distinction to make is, you know, the, the people working at the forest service are there for a reason, right? They love the forest as much, if not more so than, than us. Um, but they just don't have, yeah, they can't be everywhere at once to determine what can and can't happen. And when they're trying to fight against you know, industry or logging, you know, it's going to be even that much more difficult to, you know, make sure you people are making educated decisions before ground gets broken. That's right. And this decision is coming from way up at the very top of uh, the administration and uh, the U.S. Forest Service. This isn't 
at all a reflection of the hardworking personnel, the, the rangers that you meet every day. Um, they're doing their best with the limited resources they have. But this proposal makes their jobs way harder because right. they no longer have outside scientists. They no longer have public comment to guide them in protecting important places and knowing where, you know, favorite trailheads and hotspots are. I mean, they generally know their forest, but the public and scientists play a critical role in helping them do their job. And uh, so the Southern Environmental Law Center has been following this rule really closely, and they actually looked at every single logging project that the Forest Service has done in the Southeast over the past 10 years. And what they found is that the projects that included public comment and scientific input were actually conducted faster than the ones that didn't have those. So uh, people and scientists can make the project go faster and give them better input in a more timely fashion. So their logic that this is you know, going to cut bureaucracy and streamline the process is completely flawed. And the data, their own data shows that they can actually do a faster and better job with the public and with scientists involved. Yeah, I mean, I, that was one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, they they think it will speed up the process and it doesn't. Um, and also, I mean, there is already an allowable amount of this kind of industry within the National Forest. So there, there is, you know, we understand there's commercial logging pipelines. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that, but this activity is already happening, but it's just happening under the watch of citizens, under the watch of scientists, under the watch of people who actually have the ability to determine, hey, this is this old growth. Is this, you know, a rare habitat? So it's, it's currently happening, but it's under some very strict guidelines and regulations right now. That's right. And I think, uh, one important uh, distinction to make is, uh, and, and something I didn't really understand fully uh, until I dove deep into this issue and to, and to other issues, is the difference basically between a national park and a national forest. You know, on the map, they all are green spaces, and we think they're equally protected and managed the same way, but they're not. There's a very big difference between a national park like Shenandoah and the George Washington Jefferson National Forest that surrounds it. They're managed by two completely different agencies with two very different uh, uh, ways of managing the, the lands. Parks are meant primarily for recreation and conservation. There's no logging in, in Shenandoah National Park. National forests are managed for multiple uses, and those include timber, as well as recreation, water, and wildlife. So they have a multiple use mandate. They have four things they have to do. And traditionally, they focus mainly on timber, but recreation and wildlife and water are also important parts of how they're supposed to manage the forest. But the Forest Service is ultimately under the umbrella of the Department of Agriculture, and this is really important. The parks are under the Department of the Interior. The Forest Service is under the Department of Agriculture. So. To the Forest Service, the forests are often viewed as uh, products, as agricultural products to be harvested. Huh. That view is shifting uh, in the 21st century. The Forest Service is modernizing and coming to see the forest as more than just agricultural products. But that old mindset still hangs on, especially at higher levels in the Forest Service, 
And that's what we're seeing here with this decision to cut the public and science out of the process. Gotcha. So, okay. So what does the process currently look like? You know, approximately how long does it take and what are they striving to bring the process to? Like, how will that change? Right. So there are logging projects on national forests and, you know, um, how you feel about them, you know, is up to you, but, but they do do logging projects. And so what I personally think is that if logging is going to be done in national forests, it should be done with strict oversight and lots of public comments. So it's done in the right places. Mm -hmm. um, we should not be logging ever in old growth forests or in or rare species habitat. Right. Um, but maybe there's some old pine plantations that could be uh, uh, restored by some regenerative logging that takes down just these uh, essentially monocrops and replaces them with a more diverse forest long term. So there are potentially some logging projects that can do some good. But that, but that requires a lot of public oversight and scientific input and expertise that the Forest Service doesn't always have. And so... When they cut the science, scientists and the public out of the process, we're going to see some logging projects in some very bad places. And that's, to me, the most worrisome part of this, this proposal. Wow. So you're saying there's actually a view of the world where logging process, you know, so I haven't really made up my mind about how I feel about logging projects. It sounds like it could, there could be some benefits to it, you know, if they're in the right places, um, especially now that there is some oversight, there is some involvement of the community of science as a whole. Um, and so right now, at this point, they are trying to speed up the process. Where are they? Like, when when would this take into effect if it would? You said there's going to be some, obviously, some litigation and some sandbagging, which is great. Yeah. You know, how long would that take before it would be in effect if it does? So they released this rule as a draft uh, rule in August. They had a very short public comment window. But nonetheless, there were, uh, I think, 25,000 public comments that flooded the Forest Service all opposing this rule, almost 99.9% .9 of them against this rule. Wow. Whether the Forest Service and the administration will take that into account, uh, we'll see. Most likely, if the pattern holds, they will ignore public comment and push forward with this rule. But they still have an opportunity to respond to this deluge of public comment and change the rule so that it does not cut the public and science out of their decision making. And that would be a great thing to celebrate. Most likely though, I think we'll see a rule in 2020 that somehow cuts the public and science out of their decision making process, which would then enable them to log whenever and wherever they want to. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely scary um, to know that it could happen that quickly. And it's not just logging. Uh, I think you've probably seen in the news the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the Mountain Valley Pipeline have generated a lot of attention, uh, backlash in some places, uh, and and it's now has been stopped by the of all things the Appalachian Trail has essentially stopped both of those pipelines in their tracks pending a Supreme Court hearing. So. Um, we're talking pipelines as well as logging projects and other things, mining. Um, there are a lot of projects that the Forest Service can conduct on public lands, but they require public input and oversight. And if we decide we don't want pipelines coming through our national forest, our voice matters. And for the Forest Service to say your voice doesn't matter, 
on public lands, I think is a great insult to the American people. These are our lands. Right. Own them, we pay for them, and we should have a say in how they're managed. Yeah, because, I mean, it does. It impacts everything. It's not just for environmentalists. It's for, you know, water quality and, you know, pipelines, like you were mentioning. Most of the, most of the people in the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast, their drinking water source comes from a national forest. Mm -hmm. So most of us are drinking national forest water. Um, it's, it's a critical source of water, obviously, of scenic views. Recreation has become the driving force of our regional economy. Uh, and, you know, for better or for worse, the, the Appalachian region is not sustained by timber. It's sustained by people coming, hiking our trails, enjoying our scenic views. That's the future of Appalachia. That's where we're growing. And this proposal puts all of that in jeopardy. Yeah. Interesting. So is this something that we... Is this only a concern in the East, or is this something that's also a concern elsewhere in the country? Yeah, so this is a national proposal. I focused on the East because that's where I live, mm -hmm. and there are actually uh, the most biodiverse national forests are here in the East, but there are millions of acres out West that will also be affected. National forests are all across the country from Alaska to Florida, uh, and the whole country will be affected by this. Now, different regions have different... Um, will have different effects. But here in the Southeast, uh, since most of our logging projects and pipeline projects uh, would fall under that 4,200-acre uh, umbrella, um, we have more to lose than, than, than most other areas. Right. The for what the Forest Service can do, and this gets really technical, but they can essentially divide a big project, like say the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, into a bunch of small projects that are under 4,200 acres. And uh -huh. they're... Uh, bypass public comments and scientific review. Wow. So just kind of break it up until it gets to the full project, as long as it stays, each individual part stays under 4,200 acres. Yeah. Holy cow. They've thought of everything. This seems to be a very, very consolidated effort. So, all right. So, you know, in this podcast, I get the opportunity to speak to people from all different walks of life. So I've talked to, you know, Enrique Ortiz. He's the executive director of the Andes Amazon Fund. I talked to Chris Duke of the Phoenix Conservancy in Madagascar. They've both mentioned to me that they see a lot of this governmental dismantling in their respective countries, whether it's in you know Brazil or where the Amazon is or in uh, Madagascar itself. We're seeing it here, you know, for obvious reasons. But sorry, on the flip side of that, I actually see that there's a lot of positive public awareness public concern getting upticked because because of the administration do you see that on your end do you see that that uptick in positive you know, concern from the people i do and it's sad that it's taken you know some severe environmental insults to trigger this but yes i see a, a wave a tidal wave of of passionate uh folks from all walks of life getting more involved, not just in conservation, but in democracy. And it's been really inspiring. But you're absolutely right. Uh, let's first state the obvious. Um, as tragic as the uh, NEPA proposal is to gut the, uh, the public and, and take the public and science out of our national forests, um, my life is not in jeopardy by uh, 
opposing this this uh, this rule. Right. Brazil, that's a very different story. Um, and all across Latin America and South America and the Amazon and Madagascar, as you mentioned, uh, people defending land are are being killed. Right. <laughs> uh, environmental defense is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world, more dangerous than being a soldier in, in most places. Uh, we lost 164 people last year to uh, people simply uh, taking a stand for their land, whether they're indigenous or uh, just activists trying to protect the Amazon. Um, so beyond our borders, it's a much more dangerous and serious assault on our environment. Having said that, it's also really inspiring to see across the globe, not just here in the United States, but around the world, this, this tsunami of uh, passionate activism rallying against some of these thoughts um, yeah. on the environment. I mean, I think about Greta Thunberg, obviously, and the climate and the youth climate strike just last month was incredibly inspiring. And, and movements like the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion, these, these uh, protests happening all over the, the world um, the United States is seeing some of that, but really it's even more active in Europe and Latin America and in other places. So I'm really inspired by the global outpouring of energy that's, um, that's happening right now. Yeah, same here. And that's, um, you know, that's something I never want to forget, right? I mean, there's a lot of distressing things. You know, like you're mentioning, what we're talking about right now is just a, a tip of the iceberg, but there's the Endangered Species Act that's pretty much being gutted. I mean, pretty much everything at this point is in jeopardy if it's related to the environment at all, at least in the United States. But it is good to know that there are people on the other side fighting it. Like, no one's giving up without a fight. Um, and even though our lives aren't in jeopardy, it's, it's, it's still something that people should take very seriously um, because it's a slippery slope. You start losing a little bit of it, and you're going to lose it all. And, and that's right. You know, who knows that's where we'll be at that point? That's why the NEPA uh, Act, cutting the public out, is maybe more concerning to me than even gutting the Endangered Species Act. Yeah. As much as I love endangered species and, and how uh, critical that act is and has been, um, when you take the public out of public lands, as you mentioned, it's a very slippery slope to you know autocratic corporate or other control of public lands, of those lands being sold off to private entities. That's been proposed under this administration. So uh, it, it is worrisome. But I've been really inspired by uh, how many folks have stepped up and responded positively to this. You know, I often think about this. You know, I've been in conservation for decades now. Um, and I always ask myself, you know, what does it take for people to change? And some people can do it voluntarily. They just, you know, are inspired to change, to give up, to restrain themselves, to, to go vegetarian or to, you know, attend a rally. Other folks, it takes a crisis. Um, yeah. And I think we're in the midst of a crisis and that's inspiring a lot, a lot more folks to step up. I wish it didn't require a crisis, but here we are and it's inspiring to see so many people responding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can see that all the way down to people running for public office, right? Now. Whether they have environmental and a part of their agendas or not, people are responding and people are realizing, hey, first of all, if, if this guy can do it, anyone can run for office, A. But B, you know, uh, I probably should jump in, put my hat in the ring right now while, while I can change something. Yep. 
and it's it's especially exciting to see, especially in conservation, young people and diverse people getting involved. I think it's a fair criticism that the conservation movement has traditionally been stale white males uh, leading it for most of the 20th century. In the 21st century, it has to evolve, and it's starting to already, and the, the leadership that's coming from young folks, uh, environmental and social justice coming together, um, to me is really exciting, because you can't separate the health of our planet from the health of the people um, who are fighting to protect it. We're, we're all in this together, and it's exciting to see that that synergy of folks coming together, um, working together for the first time, really. Um, and, and so that's maybe the most exciting development in the, in the past years, year, in the past few years, to see environmental justice taking off and so many young people getting involved politically, socially in this movement. Yeah, yeah, it's something that's post anything. It's post race, it's post, you know, belief system. It's beyond all of that. Um, That's right. So everyone should be involved. And yeah, I, I mean, uh, exactly like what you're saying, the marriage between, um, you know, social justice and also environmental justice. I mean, that's a very thin line right there. So yep. I, I mean, to see that. if you look at where most of the resource extraction happens in Appalachia, especially, um, there's a you know a petrochemical hub planned now for Appalachia, an 86 billion dollar uh, hub that essentially could turn Appalachia into Cancer Alley, like in Louisiana. Most of the pollution of the resource extraction takes place in poor places, is sited in places uh, where there's African American or Latino populations, and so it's really exciting to see those folks standing up and saying, uh-uh, not anymore. We're standing up for our communities, our health matters just as much as everyone else's. And so that's where the environment and social justice are coming together to say, we need a new vision of a renewable energy infrastructure, of forests that are carbon sinks and recreation hubs and uh, more of a sustainable vision for our country that involves everyone. Uh, it's exciting to see. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I was telling you before the call that I live I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia, but right now I live in Wilmington, um, and we had Hurricane Florence a couple of years ago, and just seeing the destruction of Hurricane Florence, and then also, you know, we happen to have one of the more polluted rivers, the Cape Fear River, which you've also written about as well, so you're very aware of that, um, and neither the hurricane nor the pollution of the river knows color, like, it's, everyone is impacted and to your point, you know, African-American and Hispanic communities, even more so than than other communities. Um, so it's definitely, I mean, this is, everyone's got skin in the game uh, for environmental issues. Well said. So what is, um, okay, so there's definitely a lot, a lot going on. And there's probably a lot for someone who doesn't have, who doesn't dive into it as much as you do or as much as... Um, you know, Blue Ridge Outdoors. Um, what about what about anyone? Um, excuse me. What's going on right now that people can pay attention to, other than this uh, current issue? Is there something else on the horizon that you're thinking about? Is there something else that you you know want to get ahead of that you've heard about? Well, um, you know, we talked about a few of these issues. I think 
forests are underrated. We have we don't recognize the amazing place that we live in here in the East. Whether you're in uh, New York or in Florida, here in the East, we have one of the largest temperate rainforests in the world. It's essentially a rainforest and one of the most biodiverse parts of the planet. The most salamanders in the whole world, right? That's right. This is the south <laughs> capital of the world. But a lot of people don't realize that Alabama, um, not considered a hotbed of conservation necessarily, but there are more species of frogs and turtles and fish in Alabama than anywhere else on the planet. So wow. Wow. the southeast, the mid-Atlantic, is an incredible reservoir of biodiversity, and our forests are really important in protecting all of that. So our forests are not just important for our economy, for our recreation, um, but also important for the, sus the sustenance of a lot of species, and, um, and also even for climate change. This is a really important place to protect. Car forests are carbon sinks. They can soak up a lot of carbon and uh, help mitigate climate change. So there's a lot of reasons to protect our forests, especially right now. But other issues that I see as equally important are the, the whole energy infrastructure. Um, whether this region especially, the Mid-Atlantic, the Southeast, the East in general, is going to become a fossil-fueled fracked gas pipeline infrastructure that's, that will be in use for the next century, or are we going to build a renewable energy based around solar and wind and more localized energy sources? Uh, we're, we're kind of making that decision right now. Whether we build these pipelines or not, whether we invest more in solar and wind or not, that's happening right now. And that, that will affect the next century because if those pipelines get built, if uh, those solar farms and wind farms don't get built, uh, we're going to be stuck with fracked gas for another century. But if we can turn the tide right now and move more toward a more renewable en energy infrastructure, that saves the health of this entire region and puts us on a much better trajectory. So the decisions being made right now about pipelines, they may seem insignificant, but we're going to live with these decisions for the next century. And I hope we can get them right. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched upon this um, earlier, but the Appalachian uh, Storage and Trading Hub. That's being proposed to be built. What was it like, eighty billion dollars or something like that? Something right. ridiculous. But like, much of that is being funded by the Chinese, and a lot of that energy will go to go there, or you know, it will lessen the ability for this area, for that area rather. So it's like, you know, Pennsylvania and um, West Virginia to move to renewables, and it's only going to create, you know, a handful of jobs at the end of the day, like less than a thousand or something. And, and as you mentioned, most of that gas that's going to be coming from our ground is going to go overseas. Yeah. We're even going to get that gas. And it's another sad example of the Appalachian region being exploited for its natural resources and then damaging it long term. We've seen it over and over. Let's stop the cycle. West Virginia, in my opinion, and I've been working in the southeast and mid-Atlantic for 20 years, is the most beautiful state in the east. Yeah. That's but gorgeous. Its beauty does not get celebrated and appreciated by enough folks because traditionally it's been just hammered by coal mining. And now that we're starting to see the decline of coal and the resurgence of recreation and tourism in West Virginia, it's a great opportunity to celebrate what West Virginia has and not decimate it with, a, with their cancer alley petrochemical hub 
that's going to lock us into fracked gas for another century, and, and that will only benefit the Chinese. Now is the time to, to change our trajectory and make West Virginia a beautiful, uh, sustainable place of energy where jobs stay locally and uh, the, the 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 whole region can benefit and um, not be exploited as it has in the past. Yeah, and they're already starting to. I, I don't think it's as strong as it should be, but they're already starting to, um, you know, work on some at least some wind energy. When I've driven past or you know, through West Virginia last time, I've seen some big turbines. So there, the ball is in motion. But I mean, it's re- it is really hard to. I'm sure combat some of this fracking initiative that's going to happen, especially. If you're cutting the public out, like you mentioned, um, is this hub, is this $84 billion project, this is one of those projects that could feasibly be built without the public's awareness by breaking it into 4,200 or less. So this, this is a little different because this will not take place on national forest lands. This will be privately owned, but it's it's gotcha. a it's a government-funded project. So taxpayers do have a say in how their money is used. This is a private firm, a Chinese firm that's uh, leading it, and so they will control where the gas goes. But Appalachia has a really has the voice in deciding whether or not they want this in their backyard. Mm. I think we've learned this lesson before. Um, fossil fuel industries do not treat the region well. They come in for short-term gains, and we end up with long-term losses, as you're seeing with bankruptcy and coal miners not getting their back pay and being stuck with, you know, black lung disease and not having any funding to treat it. We've been here before. Let's not make the same mistake again. Yeah. I mean, that's what this whole thing is for short term profit, for getting the, you know, getting the economy up as strong as possible in the short term and then not worrying about it in the, you know, anytime in the future. And you're exactly right. Even if you pull any kind of environmental issue out of it, there's a health benefit. Or there's a, excuse me, a health detriment to this. Exactly. And um, that to me is is the most important uh, element of it. As much as I love trees and forests and, and rare species, um, I'm concerned about the health of Appalachian citizens, of, of all Americans, and especially ones whose backyards are about to be sited with uh, a petrochemical hub that is known to create and generate carcinogens that are, are unavoidably going to lead to more cancer, to more health problems. That to me outweighs uh, any kind of short-term benefit to to economies that's not going to last for very long and is not going to create very many jobs and is ultimately going to cost more in healthcare and environmental damage than it it produces. So with this, you know, it can sound like with what we're talking about, that everything is bad, that everything is kind of burning. One of the interesting things is, you know, I think in February of this year, the Senate passed the biggest bill to protect the most amount of land we've protected. So I think it's like 1.3 million acres in the West. Um, And then just to make sure that like a lot of these national parks cannot have any development from mining or anything. So Yellowstone and then some one in, um, one in Washington. So this is proof that there are some victories out there, uh, even though the administration is trying to erode the, um, you know, it seems like a lot of the environmental protection. Is there any other 
instances of the environment winning over short-term profit that you can think of? Yes, absolutely. In fact, just uh, nine months ago, the the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic celebrated one of its biggest victories in in a decade. The Tennessee Wilderness Act was passed. Uh, In this administration, in this political climate, we passed a 20,000-acre wilderness bill that we've been working on for over 10 years. We couldn't get it passed in, in the Obama administration, but here we are in, of all times, the Trump administration getting the Tennessee Wilderness Act passed that protected the Upper Bald Wilderness, parts of Joyce Kilmer, protected over 20,000 acres in you know the heart of red state territory. Yeah. So, was was a was a huge victory and something to celebrate and it was a bipartisan effort it was led by a republican senator uh, from tennessee so conservation is something that traditionally all people you know of all parties and persuasions uh cared about and i think we can get back to that i think conservatives conservation is in their name and traditionally they were very concerned about conservation i think we're moving back in that direction and even though, yes, the petrochemical hub is depressing, if that happens, it's also an inflection point, just like these pipelines. If we stop them, that changes course. So it's also an opportunity to change the momentum um, and, and change trajectory. If we stop these pipelines, for example, that essentially would uh, ignite the, the renewable energy infrastructure. Uh, it would changes to would force us to change course in in exciting ways so uh the the challenges the the crises the threats also present really great opportunities yeah absolutely and and just to your point like this is not a a partisan issue like teddy roosevelt was the biggest conservationist we've had essentially as a president he was a republican nixon you know say what you want about him but he started the epa um and he signed the Endangered Species Act. Right, yeah. So you got to give him props. He's, you know, he passed more environmental legislation than anyone in the 20th century. Wow. First. So absolutely. And Republicans, um, they represent a lot of, uh, uh, of folks who love the outdoors, but maybe uh, see it in a different, through a different lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Appalachia, where there are a lot of hunters, a lot of anglers who love their forests and love to get out and hunt and maybe they vote conservative, but uh, they care about conservation just as much as tree hugging, organic liberal hippies like me Um, (laughs) language. But we don't, what I found is that we both love the forest for the same reasons. We love just being out there immersed in nature, clearing our minds, feeling connected to something larger. And we need to get back to that because all of the, the loud discourse in America is driving us apart when really we have much more in common when we realize, especially when it comes to conservation, we all love our public lands. Mm-hmm. We all want to enjoy them. We all want to make sure our children and grandchildren can enjoy them. That common ground, that can go a, a, a long way. Yeah. I mean, we're in a really unique position that we have those public lands and every one of us does. I mean, like you mentioned, we're all paying our taxes towards them. Um, so we should all utilize them. And fight for them. So you know you cover a lot. You cover a lot when you write. Um, one of the big things that you talk about is the red wolves in the Albemarle Sound of North Carolina. My numbers might be off because I know they fluctuated, mainly decreased. But 
the last I heard was, you know, like 25 or so. I used to live in that area. Um, unfortunately, that also seems to be a very polarized issue. But, like, the last you reported on it, you talked about this, um, you know, and you could probably talk about it a little more, but, like, a dramatically reduced, a rule that would have dramatically reduced their habitat by 80%, which is already really constricted. Again, it's 25 of them in a very small area. Um, but it wasn't, it didn't pass because of the uh, Endangered Species Act. So do you have an update on the status or do you want to um, just kind of talk about them and inform the listener about potentially how they could help? Yeah, certainly. So the red wolf was one of the greatest uh, success stories in conservation and endangered species history. So we essentially uh, started a red, we, we, out of captivity, we rescued the red wolves from extinction, bred them in ca- captivity and then released them back into the wild in eastern North Carolina. And for wow. for three decades, it was an incredible success story of these red wolf populations recovering, expanding, thriving. And it was only in, until 2014 that things changed. So their population got up to um, from a very small amount that had, sim- had essentially been reared in zoos and in captivity – They grew to uh, over 150 wild red wolves reproducing naturally. But then in 2014, a very, very small but vocal group of landowners decided they didn't like the red wolves because they looked too much like coyotes and they wanted to shoot their coyotes, uh, especially at night. And uh, this small group um, made a lot of noise and got the U.S. Fish, US Fish and Wildlife Service to essentially consider uh, abandoning the Red Wolf Project uh, and abandoning their protections for the Red Wolves. And the Fish and Wildlife Service has moved in that direction. They've pulled back protections. They're not actively protecting the Red Wolves. And they've proposed essentially shutting down the program by cutting out 80% of their habitat, which essentially dooms the program. Red Wolves can't survive on a small little patch of, you know, of the 20% that remains. They just, they're free roaming uh, predators that can't be confined to such a small area. So that will essentially doom them in the wild. Fortunately, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Endangered Species Act said, Fish and Wildlife, you're not doing your job. You are required by law to protect this endangered species, which is these endangered species on the planet. As you mentioned, 25 of them left in the wild. So they've reached critical numbers where a judge intervened and said, nope, this plan is outrageous. You are charged with protecting endangered species. Do your job. And that's where things are at right now. Uh, So the Fish and Wildlife Service is going back and revising its plan and hopefully restoring the boundaries of the red wolf habitat so that they do have a fighting chance in eastern North Carolina and, and beyond. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, yeah, I had no idea that they were trying to really completely withdraw, uh, from that project. So, um, yeah, and I've, I have personal experience. I mean, I went, uh, kayaked in that area. And if you pause, we went with a group of us. If you pause and how they'll actually respond to you, uh, which is really cool. Nothing more spine tingling than hearing a, a wild red wolf howl yeah. uh, 
that's just a powerful experience that you can have in eastern North Carolina. And that could potentially draw a lot more recreation and tourism and jobs and all of that. But uh, right now, those, those red wolves are barely hanging on. And um, I'm really hopeful that uh, this litigation and there were over 55,000 public comments. That's the other exciting thing. Once again, a deluge of comments saying, save these red wolves. These are the last of the red wolves. Um, and so when the public is overwhelmingly behind something on their public lands, I think it's really important that the government responds. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. When we, um, you know, I've driven around a lot in that area and, um, you know, there's actually billboards against the red wolves. There's actually billboards against the national park, uh, you know, against the workers in that area. Um, and, and I, Part of me does get it. I mean, these are people who are you know, ranchers and farmers who are just trying to make their own living. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, there's 25 of them. I mean, if, you know, I can't imagine they're creating that much of an issue or even the coyotes themselves are creating that much of an issue. That's uh, exactly. There have been several studies done down there that show that their, their impact is minimal. Yeah. And that... The conservation organizations and other groups have offered to reimburse and pay for any losses, which are usually quite small. Honestly, it's become more of an ideological dispute than an actual threat to any farmers or, or uh, livestock. That's really not the issue. That's become kind of a smokescreen, but there's not any impending threat to livestock or farmland being posed by coyotes or red wolves. It's more... Um, an ideological opposition to federal lands um, and rare species being introduced or being brought there that they're native to the whole eastern United States. They belong, red wolves should be from, you know, Pennsylvania, maybe up even in Canada, all the way down into, you know, the Gulf states. So they once roamed all over the east. We could. Wow. All that's left is this one little national wildlife refuge in eastern Carolina. And, you know, if there's so much local opposition, um, then maybe they, we should move somewhere else. But really, it's um, a, a very small minority of, of folks that oppose the Red Wolves. As the public comments show, overwhelmingly people want them. There's just a small group that doesn't want them, and they're making a lot of noise. Um, it's complicated, uh, for sure. The vocal minority. Well, that is definitely comforting to hear about, you know, again, it does seem like overall people are, are thinking about this for the long view and headed in the right direction, regardless of where either the minority of people in that area is going or, you know, the administration itself is going. So it's comforting to know that most people are for, you know, rehabilitating the Red Wolves. Um, you seem to know this, this area as good if not better than anyone where where could they go where do you think that these wolves could go that would be a lot maybe a little bit less of an issue that's a good question i mean there there is always the fear of you know wolves have always been portrayed as the big bad wolves um but our red wolves are much different um they're much smaller than even the the wolves out west um they're not big and bad um and they don't, they've never ever attacked a human um, and they pose no threat to 
to us or and so to me um i think they've gotten a bad rap where could we put them um you know I, we have a lot of public lands and i think any community that was wise would realize that they could have red wolves howling in their forests that would be an incredible draw globally for tourists yeah. to hear last red wolves howling in the wild i would go there you know if if eastern north carolina doesn't want them i'm sure there'll be another place in appalachia or anywhere in the east that would say bring them here because we know people will come here just to hear that howl yeah. just or they're in the in the wild yeah it was when i heard it it was um eerily both comforting but also I mean, anytime you're out in the wilderness and you hear something like that, it's a little bit off-putting, but in a good way. It makes you realize, hey, we're not in charge out here. And I, I for one, love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they are. They're, they are closer to the size of coyotes than gray wolves. So they're not huge. They're not the big menace that people have come to expect. Um, That's right. You know, at least to people. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm looking at pictures of them right now, and they're very strikingly beautiful creatures um well cool so i've got to uh i've got to ask you some questions about running so you i mean you are a very experienced trail runner so much so that you've got a documentary um you know that came out last year el chivo about you and about your you know endurance running in the copper canyon in mexico so uh i've got to ask you Shout out to uh, Katie and Cam about this. But yeah, so what is like your, what is your favorite trail? What is your favorite area to run either in this area and also nationwide? I think we've got some of the best trails in the country, in the world, right here in, in Appalachia, in the east. You know, people often go out west and there's some majestic, amazing trails. And I've run a bunch of them. I've run the Western States 100 run a lot in California, but my favorite trail is the Appalachian Trail, especially the nice. 17 miles that go across Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Some of the most jaw-droppingly beautiful scenery, some of the toughest technical trail, some of the most panoramic, amazing vistas, some of the wildest experiences. Uh, it, it's just magnificent. So um, I put the Appalachian Trail through the Smokies ahead of just about any trail on this on this planet uh the art lobe trail down here most people don't know about it that's fine with me because my favorites uh it's it's a a 40 mile trail through a wilderness which has no roads very few signs it's one of the wildest spots in the east and there's an incredible trail that goes right through the heart of it um where you are essentially out there all by yourself and uh it's a pretty powerful experience um but uh, yeah, those are two of my favorites. I, I like the the tough stuff. I like the really rugged, technical, steep stuff because honestly, I'm not super fast. Mm -hmm. So my strategy has always been to wear people down through tough conditions, tough terrain. Hope they get tired and hope hope that I can outlast them. Yeah, I was gonna say the Great Smokies isn't known for at least some stretches of that isn't known for being the easiest parts of the AT. Um, That's right. <laughs> that's pretty cool have you ever done you know maine and up there that section of the at i run parts in vermont as well yeah it's super rugged up there as well um the appalachian trail you know we don't have fourteen thousand foot summits like they do out out west but 
you ask Pacific Crest Trail hikers and Continental Divide hikers, they will say the AT is every bit as tough as some of those, you know, big 14,000 foot climbs because our climbs go straight up a lot of times. It's really steep, rocky slopes and all sorts of tough weather and terrain. So um, there's plenty of challenge right here in Appalachia that um, you don't need to go out west. You don't need to go to the Alps. Uh, you can get plenty of challenge right here on the AT and, and the trails that surround it. Yeah, absolutely. So is that how you train just by going out and running? Like that's the big, right? The runs themselves are short. The training presumably lasts all year, if not your whole life. So is that how you do it is just by going out and training in, in tough conditions? That's right. That's, uh, that's my bread and butter. That's what I love to do. Um, and to me, it's not training. I mean, it, it is, you know, working toward a race, but really it's just an adventure in the woods. Um, and I like tough adventures where I'm out there on my own or I don't see another person. And so I go to the toughest, steepest places to do it. And you see the wildest terrain and you see some amazing creatures and you, you know, stumble into black bears and you feel wild away from them. and small. Yes. Usually they run away from me. Uh, yeah, I've yeah. seen more black bear butts than they <laughs> usually hightailing it away. But, um, yeah, that's, that's how I've trained, um, is just, uh, to train both physically and mentally. Cause it's, it's the mental aspect, especially of trail running and ultra running where you have to be able to, will yourself to keep going when it's raining or snowing and the trail is steep and rocky and wet and slippery. It's real easy to, to give up. And, uh, it's the one, it's the folks that can master the mental aspect of it that tend to do well. Wow. Yeah. Like how, um, what are the notable races both in difficulty or length that you've done in the past? And what are you planning you know, if anything, what are you working towards to do in the future? So my favorite race and, and the one I had the most success with was uh, the Mount Mitchell 40 mile challenge, which starts uh, down in Asheville essentially and goes straight up to the top of the highest mountain east of the, the Mississippi, which is Mount Mitchell. Uh, it's 6,684 feet. You run up to the top in the dead of winter. It's always in February. Oh, fun. The mountains covered usually covered in wind, in snow and ice, and um, and then you come straight down. And uh, I won that race five times and had a course record for a while. Uh, but these youngins are getting faster and faster and uh, can barely keep up. So Mount Mitchell Challenge is one of my favorites because it's a wintertime, rugged, extreme race in in the most elemental, raw conditions. And, and it's just a, a, an astonishingly beautiful course. Um, as you mentioned, I ran the Copper Canyon Ultra, which is the exact opposite. It's in the canyons of Mexico, super hot, 100-degree heat, uh, searing canyon walls. You just get baked out there for 50 miles. Um, and you're running alongside the most amazing human beings on the planet, these Taramara indigenous people who run – for hundreds of miles, virtually barefoot, um, with no Gatorade or fancy right. gear, they've got a little sack of cornmeal, and that and that's essentially what sustains them for, in some cases, hundreds of miles. So, uh, they're pretty phenomenal human beings. Yeah. What was your time for the Mount Mitchell forty mile, the one that you 
you know what? I think it was four hours and 50 minutes, but that's since been shattered by some much more talented runners who've run, I think, close to 430. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, uh, the sport has is getting faster every year, and uh, that's exciting to see because it's a young sport. I, I think it's going to continue to grow, and there's so many great challenges to take and um, so many great trails to explore, so I'm excited to see where it's going. Yeah, and it's one of the few sports that you can really, like you're mentioning, play with the conditions. You know, okay, let's do this one in the dead of winter. Let's do this one in the blistering heat. Um, let's do this one in snow or rain or just over different terrain. There's so much more you can do with it versus like you know, golf or something. That's right. Low barrier to entry. All you need is a pair of shoes. And the Taramara don't even have shoes, so you don't necessarily even need those. But it doesn't cost a lot. You can go out on trails for free. You can challenge yourself in the craziest, wildest conditions, in the wildest ways. You don't need a race. Uh, you don't really even need a watch or a clock, but that you know, is sometimes your best challenge is against yourself. That certainly for me is, um, can I be faster than I was yesterday, and can I be better than I was before? Um, I'm usually my toughest and uh, hardest competitor. Yeah, well, that's good. That's probably a healthy way of going about it is just competing with yourself. Um, so in terms of, you know, what we were chatting about earlier with a lot of the environmental issues, they seem to, it's really like a death by thousand cuts. It really seems to be something new in the news every day. What can people do both to stay informed of what's an often complex and ever evolving subject matter and topic um, with, you know, whether it's about red wolves or whether it's about, you know, just keeping an eye out for their national force, what can people do to stay on top of everything? And then also what can people do to help to make sure a lot of these, you know, issues don't become bigger than they are. I think the number one thing to do, the first place to start is, Go outside. Go outside and play. Um, it doesn't have to be a national forest. It can be a local park. But get out there, connect to it, experience it. You know, when you go to uh, a sports game or you go to a concert, you are suddenly so much more invested in that performance. And, and you feel a part of it and you want to follow it and you feel connected to it. Same is true of you know, the wild places in your backyard. Um, so when you experience it, you automatically become a natural advocate for it. And that to me is the most important part is getting folks just naturally connected to the places where they live, the places that they love. And then from there, you can join trail crews, join movements. Sadly, most of the trails in our neck of the woods, most of the trails across the country are not maintained by forest service or park service staff they're maintained by volunteers and most of those most of those volunteers are are 60 70 years old um it's an aging volunteer workforce and we need young folks to come in and help um a, a new younger generation of trail maintainers and to to build and expand our trail networks so that's one, one fun way to get involved but um you don't have to necessarily get your hands dirty uh Make some noise, as you talked about earlier. Uh, get involved politically, um, even if you're not championing national forests or public lands. 
um, if you have a natural connection to them, you'll be looking out for them. And um, we need younger folks and new folks to to lead the way. So take some chances. Do something different, whether it's a hike that you didn't think you were capable of doing or running for an office that you didn't think you were qualified for. Um, be bold. Now is the time to take some risks and speak up and uh, make yourself heard. Yeah. The price of inaction or remaining quiet um, it can be really big. And it's something you'll never know until oftentimes it's too late. Um, it's funny that you mentioned about the uh, people volunteering with the trail. My dad turned uh, 64 this year and he just started talking about volunteering with the trail himself. Um, and, and they they do phenomenal work. They I mean, do. It's, it's crazy. If you've ever been out on any trail, next time look at the, the rocks and the tree roots and imagine how much work went into that trail and how much work continues to go into that trail just to keep it accessible. Every year, every trail is maintained um, because they quickly disappear without maintenance. And so it takes a lot of uh, sweat equity and that's a fun way to join a trail crew team. That It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. It's a great workout and it's a great way to get to know your trail on a much more personal level. Yeah, that's absolutely something I want to do. Um, yeah, especially whenever I'm in the area with him. Well, cool. I mean, I mentioned earlier, uh, so you are a New York Times bestselling author. Um, is there any project that you are working on right now? You know, you, you wrote the book Untamed. Um, so I'm not sure if you want to talk about that. Uh, but it is the story of the, you know, the wildest woman in America and the fight for Cumberland Island, which is exactly like what we've been talking about. You know, one person really seeming to take an issue larger than themselves and take it on. Uh, completely head-on. Um, so it seems like some kind of thing that fits into this trend that we've been talking about. Yes, yeah, so Carol is an amazing woman. Uh, it's, an, it's a biography that I wrote about Carol Ruckdeshell, who lives on Cumberland Island, which is a national seashore off the coast of Georgia. And uh, if you need inspiration, uh, there's no, no person that I find more inspiring than Carol. Uh, um, what she's done to protect that island and its sea turtles and its old growth forests. Uh, she's a pretty remarkable woman. Um, there aren't a lot of people like Carol left. And so I've been looking for another Carol to write my next book. So if, if you know of anyone, if any of your listeners know of anyone, I'm, I'm eager to find similar heroes, similar people with passion and courage and grit who are defending the places that they love. Well, we'll, Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. I think that what you're doing right now is incredibly important and also very timely. Um, so thank you for the good work that you're doing and also for getting everyone's story out there and making sure we're all as informed as possible and we all know how we can move forward with helping national parks, national forests, and also red wolves and everything else that you talk about on a daily basis. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you for uh, including me and sharing all of this information with your audience. It sounds like you're doing really great work. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And yes, let's keep in touch. Uh, you know, as issues come up, as there's things that we need to inform the public about, I would love to, um, I would love to chat with you again. I'd, absolutely. I'd love it. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, 
take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.